Good morning, saints. Welcome back to the National Capital Bible Church. And Pastor Dan, it's good to see you. How was the conference? Excellent, excellent. (laughs) Did you see your pictures I took? You did. Yeah. Okay. Well, as standard operating procedure here at National Capital, we have a moment of spiritual to tie to use this time for spiritual preparation. That means we get to realign our thoughts with His, take a moment of silence and exercise 1 John 1.9 if need be, and then we'll open with prayer. Let's take a moment of silence. Father, what a privilege it is to be able to assemble together on a Sunday morning to worship you in spirit and in truth with those who love you and your word. Pray now, Father, that as we are going to lift our voices to thee, that everything we say, think, and do today would be bring you honor and glory because you alone are worthy. Thank you, Father, for keeping us safe. And we ask all of these things in Christ's matchless name in which we pray. Amen. Our call to worship is taken from Psalms 27. Psalms 27. This is a beautiful Psalms here. It's very encouraging and it reminds us that we're not alone. I don't know if some of you have ever been abandoned by their parents, but I want you to listen to what David says here in this Psalms. The Lord is my light and my salvation. And we've been studying the subject of salvation, phase two in particular. But the Lord, David says, is my light, meaning that he brings light in an area that's saturated with darkness so that we can see. He's our guidance. He's my deliverer. He's my light and salvation. And as such, Psalms 1, whom shall I fear? No one. The Lord is the strength of my life. Is he the strength of your life? Of whom shall I be afraid? David was so set in his mind, in his soul, that because the Lord was his light and deliverer and strength, there's no reason for him to be afraid. And we're living in a day and age where many people are afraid. They don't come out of their homes because they don't know if they're going to get shot. They're afraid of the economy. They're afraid of what they're seeing in the stock market. Everything is tanking. But if you have a mindset that is on Christ and you know Him as your light and salvation, you have no reason to be afraid. This is one of the benefits of assembling together each and every Sunday. He continues and he says, When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh. What's another way of saying that? To devour me. You know, he, he chewed me out. David says, When the enemy came against me to eat up my flesh, to devour me, my enemies and foes, both enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Do you have any enemies or foes? The Lord is your light and salvation. Look at verse 3, the progression here. Though an army may, may encamp against me. Some of you are, have background in the military. If an army should 
encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. In fact, though war may rise against me, if the army should come against me, in this I will be confident. One thing I have desired of the Lord that I will, will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord. Wow. The beauty of the Lord. And to inquire in His temple. For in the time of trouble, He shall hide me in His pavilion. He's going to protect you. In the secret place of His tabernacle. So He's going to hide you in His pavilion, in the secret place of His tabernacle. He shall hide me, He shall set me high upon a rock. You have to be powerful enough to be able to lift someone up on top of a rock. And this is what David says. He shall set me high away from the army and the enemies upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. Where's the enemies? All around. Therefore, I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing and I will sing praises to the Lord. Verse 7. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, have mercy also upon me and answer me. This is an example of what true prayer should look like. And then he continues and he says, When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. There's obedience there, wrapped up in verse 8. I will seek your face. You said, seek my face, that will I do. Verse 9, do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. You've been there for me. Do not leave me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. These are loaded words, brethren. Do not leave me nor forsake me. How many times have you felt abandoned? Not God. God would never leave you. Verse 10. Remember I asked you earlier about uh, strained relationship with parents? Look at verse 10. When my father and my mother... Forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. That talks about the love of God. Look at that. Even if your own biological parents were to forsake you and say, you're a loser, get out of here. Look at what God says. Look at what David says about God. Then the Lord will take care of me. That's provision. We have protection, care, Love all from God. Right there in these verses verses here. He continues in verse 12 or 11. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. I need to get away from here. I don't want to stumble. Lead me in a smooth path so that I can escape because of my enemies. 
Do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries. Don't turn, let me go into, don't let me succumb to my enemies. For false witnesses have risen against me. And such as breath of violence, and as such as breathe out violence. Verse 13, I would have lost heart. I would have been depressed. I would have been, I would have given up, committed suicide unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Verse 14, Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. He shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Wow. Beautiful passage. Strong reminder that we are never alone As you know, the Bible says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He who believes in Him is not condemned. He who does not believe is condemned already, because he does not believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. But as many as received Him, to them He gave them the right to become children of God to those who believe in His name. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, for by grace you have been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. So there you have it as customary. I like to share verses there that remind us of the simplicity of the gospel. It's not about being good. It's about placing your faith in someone who was not only good, but he was perfect. Namely, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we trek through this course on basics, I'm wanting us to know the intricacies of phase two salvation. And I know that a lot of these terms are familiar to you all. But to show you... Um, I want to show you a resource that I want to highly recommend before we get into the class. That's why I brought my backpack or my son's backpack. It's not because I brought lunch. Some of you may have heard of this book, and if you have not purchased one, I strongly encourage you to get it. Dan, you might have studied The Reign of the Servant Kings. How many of you have received this book or have this book? fantastic book. It works through soteriology, assurance of salvation, um, Calvinism versus Arminianism. This is a very persuasive book. It argues thoroughly. Dr. Jody Dillo did a phenomenal job in this book. Uh, Mike, have you used this for Chafer Seminary? This is a must-have resource for seminary students. Now, Having said that, there's even a better book. This book here, Reign of the Servant Kings, is 640 pages. Okay, There's a better book than this that addresses the same thing. Anyone know what it is? Aside from the Bible, you guys all get an A. You have The Reign of the Servant Kings by Dr. Jody Dillo and his a revised edition. Can you see the, the difference here? 
an additional 200 pages. It's called Final Destiny. Final Destiny by Jody Dilla. This is a revised, updated version of this little book. This little book is already a big book. But compared to this, this makes this small. This is 800 pages. And it is an excellent resource to have. And so every issue on salvation, all the tough passages, you can work through his book. Either one of these books are a perfect resource to have. Any serious student of the Word of God should have it. And uh, so if you'd like to see it, I, I definitely can share it with you here. But um, I agree, the most important book to have is the Bible. But authors such as Jody Dillow and others have done the research. They have studied throughout the years, 40 plus years, sometimes more, the various doctrines and theologies so that we can study it together as a local assembly to benefit from it. Now, I'm not expecting you to read the book just to have it by your side should you have time to study on your own, and I would hope that you do. But if not, just know that one of the reasons why it takes me a long time to go through my PowerPoint, things like this. So in a sense, we're going through some of this too as we go through the study. It's just all integrated into our various passages and topics that we're going through. So we're going to pick up from where we left off, now, I just want to say this. I'm going to, as you know, I have a tendency to repeat. But today I'm going to do something a little different. I'm going to have bullet points at the end so that you can see the points of observation and points of application. We'll summarize it in the end so that you can walk away with, okay, point one, two, three, four, five. I can walk home, go home, and now I know what I learned. Freddie gabbed and gabbed and gabbed, and I, now I see what he said. Okay? So that's going to be the objective this afternoon, this morning. So first of all, let's go back into this, <clears throat> these two passages here. Help me out. What did we talk, what did we say? What did I say about these two passages here? Abide in me. Menote en omoi. Abide in me. And then he uses the word abide, meno again, menete, in John 8. What's the difference between these two? Menete and amoy, and I in you, abide in me, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. John 8.31 says the following. Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if you menate in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth when you abide, and the truth shall make you free. What did I say is the difference between the two? One is uh, the command and one is by the Excellent. Which one is the command? Do you remember? Uh, the first one. You're right. That... Um, the first one is an eris active imperative, abide in me. And that Greek word again is meno, menete from meno. Eris active imperative. So in a point in time, the subject produces the action of the verb. And what is that action? Abide. Abide in me, right? 
He's talking to who here in John 15? He's talking to His disciples. And by transference, that applies to us because we are in the church age. We are following the teachings of the apostles as they wrote it. And we then, in turn, apply it to life. So, in verse 15, chapter, chapter 15, verse 4, Menete enamoi, abide in me. That is an imperative and that is a mood of command. Now, in John 8, uh, Debbie, do you remember what that is? That's, is that in the imperative? Very good. So, what does that mean? What's the subjunctive mood mean? Mood of potential, contingency. And it's also, what class condition is this? Third class condition. Very good. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. So why is it commanded in John 15 and in John 8 it's not? It's open. Remember what I had said last week? Okay, to bear fruit, but... But why is John 15 in the imperative mood and in John 8 it's in the subjunctive mood? Why is it not commanded in John 8 when it's commanded in John 15? It's a volitional issue. That's correct. But what's the difference between these two passages aside from... Well, they're both volitional. Right? Very good. Excellent, Everett. But I said something last week that I said I'd, I'd researched resources and I could not find the answer to my question. That doesn't mean that I'm asking even the right question. But sometimes when you do research and you prepare for a teaching or a class or a message, sometimes these questions come up. Remember what I'd said that I'd learned in my seminary days? Observe the text. See what's there. See what's not there. I did make a mistake and I said that in Dr. Hendrick's book, in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, there were over 400 observations on the text, Acts 1-8. Remember that? I was wrong. They made over 600. An extra 200 observations on the one verse. And all they were doing was bombarding it with text. Who was the recipients? Why was this written? Who was it written to? So who was John 15 written to? The disciples. Who was John 8 written to? The Jews who believed. What's the difference as far as relationship is concerned between John 15 and John 8? Do we know? Right? Okay, they're new believers and they may or may not be disciples. It depends on what, Debbie? That's right, based on the text, right? It's contingent upon them abiding. Please note, if you abide in my word, maybe you will, maybe you won't. That's why it's good to know what class condition it is. And here it's third class condition, which simply means it may. You may or may not. If you abide in my word, Jesus speaking, you are my disciples. Indeed. And you shall know what? The truth. And what will happen when you know the truth? It's going to set you free. 
Set you free from legalism, lordship, false doctrine. What does the scripture say? Study and show yourselves to prove the workman that does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Dissecting the truth. So if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And if you know the truth, it's going to be contingent upon whether or not you are abiding, right? What's another way of saying abiding? Aside from saying, oh, it's an aorist active. Imperative in some say, cases. Some cases it's subjunctive, subjunctive. And it's from the word meno. What else did we learn last week as far as abiding is concerned? Do you remember? There's another passage that helps us understand. Because the truth is, look, we can talk about what the etymology of a word is all day, all night. But contextually, that's where it counts. If I say I love Hal and you don't know me, you don't understand how I'm using that word. If we're in, if we're sitting, if we're in a, a coffee shop in San Francisco, the context changes it. So now, if I say I love, I love you, Hal, what might you think? Now, if I say, I love Corrine, my wife, in your mind, I'm hoping you say, okay, that's his wife. He loves her because that's his spouse, right? So context is what's key here every time we go through the text of Scripture. So we're going to look at some things that we may not have really thought through that much. So again, what's another way of saying abiding in his word? Growing? Obey, growing, okay, good. What's that, Dan? Staying close to, because the word means to remain, stay, reside, right? But another passage that helps unlock the meaning, another shade of the word abide is taken from First John, as you'll recall. Look at what it says here. What does the word abide here mean? He who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. What does John say about abiding in this passage, in this verse? Okay, fellowship out of fellowship. Okay. So, in simple terms, very, excellent, Scott. In simple terms, what is John saying in 1 John 3.24 as far as abiding here? What can we say about a person who is abiding? What is he or she doing if he's abiding or she is, she's abiding? Based on this verse. Obeying the commandments. That's right. Obeying. See it there in 1 John 3.24? He who keeps his commandments abides in him. Now remember, I'm trying to take us through what aspect of salvation? First, second, or third? Two. Number two. Why do you think that's important today? That saves us from what? Fear. Fear, right? What's phase two salvation? Phase one is saved from the penalty of sin. And phase two is saved from power. So we need power to live. Right now, don't you? I know I do. Now, so now, if 
it's true that the person who is abiding in Christ is really the one who's abiding or keeping his commandments, then we must know his commands. Does that make sense? We must know his commands. And I had made a mistake last week as well as far as the commands, and I'm going to correct it right now. Because last week I said, as I recall, that in the Old Testament there were 613 commands, and Bill helped me with that too. Remember that, Bill? 613 commands. You said it. The Holy Spirit said it through you. You said 613, and I said, right on, Bill. But I said there was 140 command, 144 commandments in the New Testament. I was off. There's a thousand fifty. Thousand fifty commands in the New Testament. Six hundred thirteen in the old, a thousand fifty in the new. How many do you know? What percentage of the commands do you know? Anybody know the Ten Commandments? They're in the, some are subcategories. Some are repetitive. Yeah. Some are duplicates. You're right. Some are in the same category. I'm the shepherd. You are my sheep. Those kind of things. And I have a list if you're interested. I can email it to you. But rather than um, go through and detail each one, I'll email it to you if you're interested. So... Notice what it says here. He who keeps his commandments is the one abiding in him. And I just mentioned there's a 1,050 commandments in the New Testament. Some are duplicated. Some are doubled. But the, the thing I want you to see is that we must know his commandments. Now, what are the two most important commandments? with all your heart, soul, and mind. And what's the second one like? Love your neighbor like yourself. So how many of you fare well with those two? What does it mean to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind? Commitment. And what's that help? Focus on Him. So focus on Him. Is that another word for like abiding? You see how they're all interconnected? Abiding, obeying his commands. The person who is keeping the commands is the one who is abiding. Now, what if you're not abiding? What does that say about the person? You're not keeping his commands. Simple as that. Now, what happens if you don't obey his commands? What do we call that? What does that do to the Holy Spirit? It grieves. What happens when we grieve the Holy Spirit? What does that do to you and to me? Out of fellowship. And what does that mean, spiritually speaking? No power. Dead in the water. Right. So, this is why it's important for us to see what will keep us in the zone, if you will. Keep us in the power. Because if we miss something or overlook one word, that's enough to get us out of fellowship. Remember, there's a sin of omission and commission. What's the difference between the two? What you do, what you don't. Omission is... Let's look at James 4.17 again. This is important. Someone read James 4.17 and someone read James 2.10. 
please. James 2.10, James 4.17. Whoever has James 4.17, kindly read it out loud. Therefore, to when you know... What was that, Bill? I'm sorry. So if you know the right thing to do and you don't do it, it is what? It is sin. How many of us blow that? You know you ought to do something, but you don't. Guess what you did? You sinned. So did you grieve the Holy Spirit? Okay, how about James 2.10? You blew them, you broke them all if you blow it in one. How's that? Feel good? Are you glad you came to church today? You break one, it's like you're guilty of them all. You know to do good and you don't, it is a sin. So can you see why we might be on the side of anemic power? Maybe we're grieving the Holy Spirit and we just are not aware of it. The sin of omission is when you know to do something and you don't, that's considered sin. But the sin of commission is when you purposely violate something clearly stated in the Word of God. Thou shall not lie. What did you do today? I lied. So you sin. That's the sin of commission. Whether you knew it or you didn't, that's the sin of commission. The first example of the sin of commission is when Adam and Eve partook of the fruit. That's an example of the sin of commission. So I I hope you can see that we must be grateful for grace. Because in spite of all of this, God continues to love you and me. Even though we blunder from time to time, whether we know it or not, we're still saved. Once saved, always saved. Right, But so we're pulling this together and seeing that the doctrines that we so love stand the test of time. They're supported with scripture. But we also must be familiar with terminology. We must be familiar with what we're saying. Like what does it mean to say Jesus is my Lord and Savior? Keep that in the back of your mind because we're going to address that. Is he your Lord and Savior? Anybody want to say yes, yay or nay? What does that mean? He's my Lord and Savior. Okay, we will unpack that in just a moment. Very good. So, the person who keeps his commandments is the one abiding in Christ, according to 1 John 3.24. The believer is said to have fellowship with him when he keeps his commandments, when he's abiding in Christ, Christ will now abide in him. But we're also told that now God the Father and God the Son will take, will make their home in the believer, which is right here. Jesus answered and said to him, John fourteen twenty three, if anyone loves me, who's me? Jesus Christ. If anyone loves me, this is what 
he will do. He will keep my word. And if you keep his word, Jesus said, my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Those are fellowship terms. That's rich. God the Father, God the Son will feel comfortable in you. Now, yes, the doctrine of the indwelling ministry of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is not affected. But you can see here that the fellowship terms, when we say 1 John 1.9, when we do spiritual preparation, it's so that we can experience John 14.23 to the fullest. Probably the best way, one way to illustrate this, and it, it has gaping holes, so don't take this as a chapter and verse in the scripture. The kind of fellowship that God wants us to have is like a, imagine a person that you love dearly. Maybe it's your spouse. And you have those moments, uh, or son or daughter, or a close friend, best friend, aunt, uncle, and you're close. Now, what happens when the re- relationship has been breached? How do you how do you feel at that moment? Like Mike and Debbie, when when the two of you are not seeing eye to eye, don't isn't there a? Well, I better not say anything because you guys are going to get out of fellowship. But for example, if my wife and I are not in the best of terms, we feel lousy. Now, if we're in fellowship, I can conquer the world. You know that feeling? Once there's harmony between the two of you, nothing can hold you back. God the Father, God the Son wants us to experience that fellowship with Him. So Jesus says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. He will guard my word. Tereo my word. He will guard my word. And my Father will then love him. Does God already love you? Yes. But there's something extra special when you honor the Lord Jesus Christ and obey his commands. This is a rich fellowship term right here. If anyone loves me, Jesus speaking, he will keep my word. Tereo my word. And my Father, God the Father, will love him. Why? Because... The person is loving and keeping the word of Christ. If anyone loves me, it'll be demonstrated by keeping my word. What's another way of say, saying keep my word? Obey. So again, we see these terms now. Once saved, always saved. Well, I just go to church once. As long as I'm saved and I'm going to heaven, that's all that really matters to me. No, there's much more than that. What about phase two? What about that empowerment? What about those verses that seem to talk about the impossible? Walk by means of the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh? Not me. If anybody knows me, I can't stop sinning in the flesh. But according to Paul in Galatians 5, it is possible. How is that possible? Walk by means of the Spirit. What does it mean to walk by means of the Spirit? Oh, that's what we're... That's what we're moving through. Walking, abiding. And what's another word for abiding? First John 3. Obey. So if you want to experience the walking, whoever walks by means of the Spirit will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. 
So by walking by means of the Spirit, that, that involves the fellowship, that involves the abiding, that involves the cooperation by applying the Word of God, obeying the Word of God. All of these things coalesce and come together. And when we do this, we will experience freedom. We'll, we'll experience the ability to walk in a way that will be consistent with Galatians 5, no longer walking and experiencing the works of the flesh. Now, I'm not saying that that's going to be an absolute at all times, but there will be moments where we will see that it is possible to live in victory. And please remember, and I'm going to say this like a broken record, the Christian life is not hard. It's impossible to live. So don't try to live the Christian life on your own willpower, on your own strength, with, oh, it's a new year, I'm going, I promise, Lord, I'm going to obey you. Those New Year's resolution, throw, chuck it in the theological trash can, ash can. It doesn't work. Our willpower is not strong enough to be able to overcome the power of the sin nature. Okay? The way to overcome it is through a consistency with the doctrines that we're studying together, which involves abiding, walking, fellowship, having God the Father, God the Son resident, making their home in us. Do you see that in John fourteen twenty three? If anyone loves me, loves Christ, he will keep my word. He will obey my word. And what will happen? What's the consequence to keeping his word? God the Father and God the Son will make their home with Him. When you have God the Father, God the Son resident in you and you're experiencing the fullness of the fellowship as explained here in John 14, 23, you will sense and feel like you can tackle anything. Isn't that what David said? Isn't that the, the opening verse that we looked at, the call to worship? He said, He's my light and my salvation. And even look at someone, a young lad like David, when he took on Goliath. What did he say repeatedly? He can't stand against the Lord. There's no way he could tackle the Lord. It wasn't just the stones that was in his bag. He knew that the war was against Goliath and God. That's a divine viewpoint that we must Utilize on a regular basis to recognize that you are not by yourself. You have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit resident in you. So if anyone loves me, it will be shown by the person keeping his word. Whose word? The words of Christ. How many of them? Well, there's a thousand fifty. So what percentage do you keep? If there's a thousand fifty and you can keep five of them, what percentage is that? not very much. And if you don't know a thousand fifty commands, how do you know if you're violating it or not? You don't. Now, I'm just as guilty. Do I know a thousand fifty commandments? No, but I probably probably read them all. So, bottom line. It's obedience to Christ here. Church membership, saying I'm saved, once saved, always saved, doesn't amount to much. What amounts to much is obeying Christ, guarding His Word, to reo His Word, 
And when that, when that takes place, my Father will love you or Him and we will come to Him and make our home with Him. How many of you know President Biden? Know of him. Remember I had mentioned this last week. What does it mean to know someone? There were four things. To say to you that you know someone could mean one of the follow, one of the four. You're aware of his existence. Two, you're familiar with his work. Three, you've met him before. I know him. I know Everett. Four, you are close friends. I know him. So the word know can have a range of meaning. Context will determine how to use that, the word know. So why do I use something so common to us? We all know what know means, right? Well, let's look at how it's used here. How is it being used here in John 17.3? What happens if you know God here? You have a relationship to God through faith, through Christ. Look at John 17.3. Is this referring to salvation? And if so, how do we know? Observe, observe, observe. Eternal life. What is eternal life, Scott? According to this verse. How does one get eternal life according to John 17.3? Anyone want to take a shot at it? John 17.3. Does it say that there? Well, let's look. Let's observe, observe, observe. This is eternal life. That they may know you. There it is right there. It's hidden right under our nose. There it is all this time. Gnosko. This is eternal life. That they may know who? The Father, right? And, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So to know God, sometimes it refers to salvation and at other times it can refer to something else. Context ultimately will determine that. But it's clear here that eternal life is the byproduct of knowing the Father who is the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's all packed right there in John 17, 3. Mm-hmm. We're already eternal. We are. And so it almost says to me that it's not just salvation, that we're going to have the abundant life. That's right. The abundant life as a result of what, according to this verse? Knowing. That's right, knowing who? The Father and the Son. So it's an ongoing pursuit in the spiritual life, knowing the Father and the Son. Knowing the Father and the Son. This is eternal life in its, when it, in its expanded form. The abundant life 
is knowing the true God, God the Father, and God the Son, Jesus Christ, whom you, Father, have sent. Bill? Yes, it would be. This is eternal life. Same as First John. Here, it encapsulates the Father and the Son. It's a vibrant relationship, a fellowship. This is a fellowship term here. They may know you, gnosko, to know the only true God and Christ, Jesus Christ. Knowing the Father, knowing Jesus Christ. That is eternal life. So when we say, I have eternal life, what are you saying? Depends on the context. If someone says, are, have you been born again? Yeah, I have eternal life. But if you share to your believing friend, you know what? I have eternal life and nothing can go, nothing can jar me in this day and age because I know who I am in Christ. Regardless of what's going on around us, I have eternal life. I know the Father and I know the Son. And guess what? He's my light and salvation. I have nothing to worry about. He said he loves the birds and the lilies. Nothing happens to them unless it's permitted by the Father. And as such, he takes care of me. He knows the hair on the amount of hair on my head or lack of hair on my head. He knows the details of my life. That is an awesome thing to know. That's eternal life. Do you know the Father? Do you know the Son? That's what John 17.3 is talking about. This is a vibrant, familial relationship with the Father and the Son. This makes up eternal life. It's not just John 3.3, being born again. It's also knowing the Father and knowing the Son. It's an ongoing pursuit of knowing the Father and the Son. That's growing in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. All of this comes together now. It coalesces. John 17.3 So knowing this verse refers to salvation because we can see it opens with this is eternal life. Knowing God the Father and Jesus Christ. In the Gospel of John, eternal life refers to the free gift that God offers to all those who believe in His Son. We know this in John 3.16, John 6.40, John 5, and other places. This is, John, this is phase one salvation. So in my mind, when I see something like this, I know that this is referring to justification salvation. Also, um, yes. That's right. That's right. He he is a seal to the day of Christ Jesus, right? That's right. When you when we bring in God the Holy, we haven't even brought the Holy Spirit in yet. But if we involve Him, what are we called? Our bodies are what? The temple. So what is the purpose of God the Holy Spirit? Union with Christ provides a a temple for Jesus Christ in us. He lives in us. Nobody else in this world can say that. So when when you're having a bad day, don't ever forget what you have in Christ. You are rich. You are rich beyond words. The worst thing that can happen to you and to me is actually the best thing that can happen to you and me. So let's just let's be 
let's be real. The worst thing that can happen to you and to me is to die. But that happens to be entrance, the entrance point, entry point to face to face with God. So the worst thing that can happen is actually the best thing that can happen. The worst thing that can happen to us has been dealt with 2,000 years ago. What was that? Your debt? Your bills? No. Eternal separation in the lake of fire. That's your worst problem. You don't have to worry about that anymore. So if he did that for you while you were still sinners, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Remember that? What more now that we're children of God? We have to grow and advance. Lock shields and make a dent in the devil's world. Winning people for Christ. Okay? So this is eternal life that they may know you. This is phase one salvation. So now, remember this passage here. I had said last week that usually in the Gospel of John, and this is taken from John, John 5.24, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has what? Everlasting life. See what's there, see what's not there. And shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. So normally the object of the verb believe is Jesus in the Gospel of John. But who is the object here of belief? God the Father. Did you ever notice that? It's not Jesus. If you want everlasting life, it's he who believes in me has everlasting life. That's the words of Christ. Here, Jesus is saying, I say to you, though, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me. Who sent him? The Father. So now notice the shift. The shift in context. That's why I said, see what's there, see what's not there. In here, it's not Jesus who is the object of the verb. Who is the object of the verb? The Father. How do we know that? Because it's the Father who sent Christ. So look, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who has sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment. Isn't that what it means to be born again? But the object of the verb believe here is now the Father. It's not even Jesus Christ. I thought it was Jesus who went on the cross and paid the sin debt. Huh? One in being. Okay, good. But how do we make sense of this though? Jesus is saying to believe in the Father. But then he also says, he who believes in me has present tense everlasting life. God the Father. Okay. All in one verse. Very good, Scott. So the context here shows that the Father is the object of the faith here, not Jesus. Jesus is stressing the need to believe in God the Father for everlasting life. So, in essence, to believe in God the Father 
one must first hear and believe in Jesus' words. Remember? You must believe in Jesus' words since the Father sent him to give this message. So by believing in the Father, you're going to believe in Jesus. Because the Father sent Jesus and therefore you must listen to what the Father said through the Son, Jesus Christ. So now that we are a little confused on that, let's move to the next one. Let's see if this makes any sense. Remember I pointed out in these two verses here, John 17.3 and John 14.9, the first one, says, and this is eternal life. We just saw that moments ago, that you may know, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent, John 17.3. So Jesus wants them to believe in the true God, the Father, John 17.3. That's part of eternal life. That is uh, eternal life. In John 14.9, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long that you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So you have two instances here of the word no. You, you have the word no, knowing God in the salvation or salvific sense in John 17.3. But then in John 14.9, speaking to Philip, why do you say... Jesus said, Have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So there's a lack of intimacy between the disciple here in John 14, 9 and Jesus Christ. So you can know him. I'm saved. I'm born again. Once saved, always saved. But at the same time, it is possible to be with Christ for so many years and not even know Him in an intimate sense. How do we know that? The words of Christ. He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father, Philip? How long has Philip been with Jesus? At least three years, three and a half years. And Jesus is saying, look, I've mentored you for three and a half years and you still don't know my Father? Don't you know whoever's seen me has seen the Father? So the first verse on the top shows that it is possible to know God in a salvific sense. Once saved, always saved. All of us have passed that. But it is possible to be with Christ, to be with doctrine, to be with His Word for so many years and still not know Him. Do you see that from John 14.9? It is possible to not really know Him intimately because Jesus is the one surprised why would you say that? I've been with you for so long. Jesus could be here saying right now, Mike, how, how, how could you say that about me? Haven't I been with you for all this time? Haven't I been there for you? I've always been in your corner. And now you doubt me? I've been with you all this time, man. How can you say, show us the Father? I've been with you for at least three years. And then when you think and you consider other places in the New Testament, like in 1 Corinthians 3, what does Paul say? Five years later, you are still not able to receive solid food. What were they doing? What was the issue in the Corinthian church? There were three sins that was listed. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul was ready to teach 
solid food. I'm ready to open this up, guys. But I can't. I have to go back to milk. Why did he say that? Okay, who they were following. That's right. What what are the three particular sins aside from following Paul and Apollos? They had three things. I heard that some of you there was three things. First Corinthians three. Strife, envy, jealousies among you all. Remember that? Because of their condition, because they were struggling with that, Paul said under the leading of God, the Holy Spirit, I can't teach you this. You're not ready. I thought you'd be ready for solid food. It's been five years since I last spoke to you and you still need milk. And even now, you're not ready to receive it. I have to go back to the basic oracles of God. So, in that instance, Paul was reprimanding the Corinthian church. Five-year gap. They should have been able to receive solid food. Here, for three years, Philip didn't know, he didn't have a clue as to who the Father was. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Jesus said. So it is possible to be saved and not know God. That's the bottom line. That's what I'm getting at. It is possible to say, oh, I've been a Christian for X number of years. I've been studying Bible doctrine all these years. Yes, but do you know Him? Do you know Him? That's what Jesus is saying. Have I been with you this long, Philip, and you, you're saying, show us the Father? You've seen the Father all this time through me. That is profound when you really think about it. It is possible to be in one sense knowing God, being saved, John seventeen three, having eternal life, but at the same time having questions, Lord, why? Why this? How can you say, show us the Father? So now, to the question in closing. We're we're almost done. We have two more hours left. Anyone want to admit to this? Is Jesus your Lord and Savior? How many of you would say that He is your Lord and Savior? You don't have to raise your hand unless you want to. Rick, He's your Lord and Savior. What does that mean? That's right. And that's, that, that's a problem. It is. You're right. So, all this is <clears throat> complicated. It is. So, Debbie? Okay, very good. I like how you're breaking it down. You're dissecting it. Very good. He's your Lord. Okay, very good. Excellent. Everett? I guess distinguishing or recognizing uh, that Jesus Christ is his height is that he's the incarnate being of the universe. Okay, and when you understand that, 
And if you understand the hypostatic union, what does that mean? Does that mean he's your Lord and Savior? Or? Well, yeah, that's what I'm... If, that, if, if that's one way to distinguish. Okay, if, if it is. Okay. Is he's the Lord all the time? Yes. Yes, Scott? Can you read it, Scott? Second Peter three eighteen for the recording. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Okay, so that's one context. Notice how I'm careful to use the word context. So if I say Jesus is my Lord and Savior, do we know of any other passage, any other context that speaks of Jesus being Lord? You're right, Scott. That, that's a, but there, remember, each passage has to be handled in its own context. It should be able to stand on its own. And it does. That verse stands on its own. And that's true. And Debbie? Uh, Romans 10, 9. Okay. Um, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus Lord has Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him. And I just wonder if that's where people think about that lordship. They do take that as part of lordship. Whoever calls on him, Lord, whoever I, says Lord. I thought that particular verse referred to uh, <clears throat> That's right. Let's go to that passage and look at what it's really saying in context. Okay? Because it is a verse that is often used, especially in the Lordship crowd. You're right, Debbie. Romans 10, 9. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be... Saved. What does the word saved mean again? Delivered. Delivered from what? Remember we have to use, we have to look at the context of where the word saved is used. Saved. Do you see the word antichrist in chapter 10? Okay, see what's there and see what's not there. The word Antichrist is not here. The word tribulation is not here. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that this can't refer to the tribulation. But look at Romans 10.1. Can you read that, Rick? Romans 10.1. Whose salvation? The brethren. Israel. My heart's desire is that they may be saved. Israel is that they may be saved. Okay? So now, let's go back to 9, or go back to 10. Well, 9, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ 
or Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God had raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now notice what it says in the next verse. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness. So that's how a person is saved, right? With the heart one believes unto righteousness. And with the mouth confession is made unto deliverance. So that, verse 11, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. And the context continues. We don't want to just stop there. For there is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. So notice what it says after that. Verse 13 is part of the context. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be, what? Saved or delivered. Look at verse 14. It expands on 13. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? You can't call on someone you don't know. So if I take my phone and I decide to call someone, I need a number to call. I need to know that person behind the number, correct? So please notice what it says here. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? That's not possible. You can't call on someone that you don't know. So Paul is saying, how can they call on him who they've not believed? Israel, how shall they believe in him whom they have not, what? Heard. So we need to speak. We need to share. Notice, how can they, how can a person call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Uh-oh, that's my job. That's also your job too, to share. How shall they preach unless they are sent? It is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God, Romans ten seventeen. So this is like me saying, guys, whoever calls on God will be delivered. You got to pray. Stop complaining. Pray. Call upon him. That's the idea here. In, that's the sense in Romans 10, um, 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's not born again. Whoever calls on him will be delivered. The believers. So if you call upon him, the person that you've believed in, because you've heard of him, then you'll be delivered. You'll be saved. That's answer to prayer. You'll be delivered from your trials and your your difficulties as you call upon him. This is not lordship theology here, though it has been used extensively to prove that one who is truly saved will call upon him. 
But contextually, it's referring to those who have already believed, calling on God, calling upon Him. Basically saying, look, you've believed in Him, you've heard Him, so call out to Him. And you'll be delivered from your trials and your problems. Does that make sense? So it's very clear here that verse 14 says, How then shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? The first thing you have to do is believe. You have to believe in Him. You have to have a relationship with Him. This is a John 17.3 in practice. You must know the Father and the Son. You must know Jesus Christ personally. How shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? So Paul is arguing that they haven't even believed in Christ yet. And as such, how can they believe in Him whom they've not heard? No one has gone and spoke to them and shared the gospel. What does Romans 10.1 say? My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they be saved. But how can they believe in Him if they haven't even heard of Him? And how shall they hear without a preacher? So go out there. And preach. Go out there and share. That's the sense here in Romans 10. This is not a salvific verse. This is not whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, phase one. This is whoever believes and knows him should call on him. We should have an active prayer life. So when you're home all by yourself, you're not with church, you're sitting there saying, God, this sucks today. Call out on him. Call upon Him, the person that you believe and you've heard. Call upon Him and you will be saved. What's saved? That's phase two. Isn't that interesting? That's our study the last several months. Phase two, salvation. Okay? So, Debbie, hopefully that helps. Does that, or did I confuse you more? Okay. I knew that would probably confuse you more, but... I'll try to clarify some more later on, but we can work with that. So, my my comment on this phrase here is as we move through phase two salvation, we need to be clear on what we say we believe in and that it aligns with biblical theology. We have to understand what we're saying. When we say He's our Lord and Savior, what does that actually mean? I'm going to try to help us understand that in just a moment. So there's a dual declaration in this phrase. Did you guys see it? A dual declaration. He's Lord and Savior. We need to break that apart and understand what we're saying if we're going to say to someone, He's our Lord and Savior. He's my Lord and Savior. What does that actually mean? So for starters, let's look at John 4, 41 and 42. We've got just a few more Minutes, I think. Actually, I'm. Can I still go, uh, Scott? There's nothing that's going to fall and put me into the alligator pit. Okay. Many more believed because of his own word, and they said to the woman, "Now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world." So. The believers in this context used an interesting synonym for the word Christ. Does anybody see what it is? 
Savior. The synonym for Christ in this context is Savior. So, let's look at, I'm going to highlight, many more believed because of His Word, the words of Christ. And notice, we have heard of Him and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Jesus is the Savior. So many more believe, John 4.41, because of the words of Christ. Can someone read verse 39 and let's remember the context of when we looked at this several weeks ago? John 4.39. Just so that we get the full force of what's being said here. So the woman's testimony, the woman's word. What happened to the many? They what? Because of the one woman. Which woman? The Samaritan woman. Remember, Jesus needed to go here through Samaria because of the one woman. He impacted her. She believed. She then, in turn, ministered to the entire city. Verse 39 says, Many believed in her word. But then many more believed because of his own word. Verse 41. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe not because of what you said. We heard what you said. But we ourselves have heard him. And we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. What's interesting is that this lines up with the purpose statement of the book of John. Can someone read John twenty thirty one, please? This agrees with the purpose statement of John in John twenty thirty one. There you go. That's rich, wouldn't you say? By believing in Him. These things are written that you may know that Jesus is the Christ. What did they say here? We know that this is indeed the Christ. So what are they saying? We believe in Him. He is the Savior of the world. By identifying Jesus as the Christ, the Savior of the world, they're unpacking a lot of things that they didn't even know yet. This is John 4. John 20, the the Gospel of John was written 20 years later. But John 4.42 here says that they heard him for themselves and they know that he is the Christ, which the synonym here is the Savior of the world. And when you connect that with the purpose statement of the Gospel of John, These things are written that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you can have life in His name. You see how it's all coming together? They knew not only the word of the woman, but the word coming from Him, Christ Himself. So now let's tackle the first half of um, Jesus is my Lord. 
when you say he's a savior, we're admitting that he's the Christ and there's salvation that has occurred, phase one salvation. So when we say he is our Lord, we need to draw from another passage. What does Luke 6.46 say? Is he your Lord? Hmm. Uh-oh. Is that a downer? What is he saying here? Help me out. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? What's another way of saying this? Why are you disobeying? So, you're calling him Lord. He's my Lord and Savior. Savior relates to phase one. Lord relates to phase two or what does it say here in Luke 6.46? You calling him Lord? What does that mean when you call him Lord? Discipleship. You're doing the things that he says. Isn't that true? Right there is Luke 6.46. If you're going to call him Lord and Savior, then I should be able to, in my mind, say, okay, Debbie said... Jesus Christ is her Lord and Savior. Debbie says the same thing. So in my mind, they admit that Jesus Christ is their Savior because they believed in Him as Christ, Savior of the world. Purpose statement, John twenty thirty one, Or he who believes in me has everlasting life. He's also my Lord, according to Debbie and Debbie. Debbie 1, Debbie 2. Which means, that tells me, that they obey Jesus Christ on a regular basis. Because that's what Jesus said here. Why are you calling me Lord? How? why are you calling me Lord and you don't do the things which I say? Does that make sense? So Jesus is saying, if you're going to call me Lord, make sure you're doing the things that I say. Don't just say he's my Lord and Savior. Because they say, hey, he's Lord of all. What does that mean? That's just a nice Lordship way of saying he's the, he is the Lord of everything in my life. But they don't even know what it means. They just equate that to salvation. You have to submit and obey and this and that. And if you don't have fruit in your life, you're proving that you're not really saved. But as we can see, if He's your Lord and Savior, if you've experienced Him as Savior because you've believed in Him as Christ, then He is your Savior. To be, to call Him your Lord means that you are obeying Him. Will you always obey Him? Not always, but like I said, do you know 1,050 of the commands in the New Testament? Probably not. But the idea, the aim, is to obey the things which he taught, which he said in the scripture. Why do you call me Lord and do, do not do the things which I say? So Jesus points out that if someone calls him Lord, it implies that they should be committed to obedience based on this verse here in front of us. That's right. Matthew chapter 7. Very good. And the problem there is that they did supernatural works. Did we not cast out demons in your name? 
do signs and wonders in your name? Prophesy in your name? And Jesus said, yeah, you did. But I never knew you. So the relationship was not there. That's frightening. The first time I observed that text, I realized that there's a lot of people who are into doing things, but that doesn't guarantee their salvation. That's why lordship falls on its face. You can be busy casting out demons, doing signs and wonders, and not even know him. Just like Philip. For three years, Philip was with Christ, and yet Jesus said, You've seen the Father. I've been with you all this time. What are you talking about? Show us the Father. So why do you call me Lord and do not do the things which I say? So calling Jesus Lord means that we should obey him as Lord. We should strive. That doesn't mean we're going to perfectly obey him in all points, every day, every moment. But I'm showing you that when we use words like Lord and Savior... There is a connection in the scripture. We must be clear on that. So now, some points of observation. We'll close here. So if you are a note taker, I have several things I'm going to point out to tie it together. Number one, the word abide means to remain, stay, reside, or to dwell. To abide means to remain, stay, reside, dwell. Menete or meno. The root word is meno. Two. Abide for the believer means to obey his words or to obey his commands. Point number three. Salvation requires us to believe in Jesus as Savior. Our Lord and Savior, remember? So salvation requires us to believe in Jesus as Savior. Even when you look at the context in John 5, to believe in the Father is really to believe in Jesus because you have to believe in what the Father, who the Father sent in order to believe in the Father and that is the person of Christ. Number four, salvation requires us to believe in Jesus but number four, disciple requires us to obey Jesus. You see the distinction between the two? So salvation is believing, discipleship is obeying. Number five. When someone says, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, hopefully we can all say this, what that should mean is I'm saved by faith and I'm a disciple by choice or volition. Does that make sense? When someone says Jesus is my Lord and Savior, what that should mean is I'm saved by faith and I'm a disciple by choice. He's my Lord and Savior. He saved me when I placed my faith in Him. He who believes in me has, present tense, everlasting life. But I'm a disciple by choice. If you abide, what does it mean to abide? Obey. Obey what? His commands. And number six. It's possible, very important to know this one especially. It's possible to know God in the salvation sense, but not know Him intimately, even after three years, as seen with Philip, 
who was a disciple who walked with Jesus daily. So that means don't be comfortable with your personal relationship with God and say, oh, I've been studying the Bible for 20 years. I read the Bible in a year last year. You can read the Bible in a year, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you know Him. It's possible there are areas that we need to tighten up a bit as clearly seen with his response to Philip. So again, number six, it's possible to know God in the salvation sense, but not know him intimately even after three years as seen with Philip. You can fill, you could change three to five, 20, 30, whatever you want to put there. The point is, it's possible to be born again and not know Christ intimately after so many years. As seen with Philip, who was there daily. So if Philip was there with Christ daily on a regular basis, and he still didn't know Christ, he didn't know the Father was in the person of Christ, then certainly that could be us here today as well. We might be lacking in our discipleship. And lastly, you violate any of these and you grieve God the Holy Spirit thus nullifying the resurrection power that could have been yours to live out the spiritual life. So if we're moving through phase two salvation and we're trying to experience the empowerment or the enablement or the influence of God the Holy Spirit, we must make sure we don't grieve Him. Not grieving Him means that we're familiar with one through seven. We know what it means to abide. It means to remain, stay, reside, dwell. We know the etymology of the word. But practically speaking, we also know that Jesus said that to abide means to obey his commands, the words of Christ. We also learn that salvation requires us to believe in Jesus. That's the very basic. This is milk. But then discipleship which relates to phase two, requires us to obey Jesus as Lord. And five, when someone says he's my Lord and Savior, what that should mean in our minds, but not necessarily in the mind of the person saying it, unless they know what we've just covered together, is that I'm saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, but I'm a disciple by choice. Does that make sense? You're saved by faith, but you're a disciple by choice. The last one requires your volition. The first one need, requires your being persuaded that Jesus, what Jesus promised and offers is real. Remember I said to believe means to be persuaded. It doesn't require your will to, to believe. And, and I believe faith is passive because when you believe in something, you're convinced, you're persuaded that something is true. If I say I'm six foot ten, hopefully you don't believe that. You're not convinced, are you? Mike, do you believe I'm six ten? I'm taller than you. There's no way I'm six ten, right? You're you don't believe that. But if I if I told you I'm Filipino and I'm five three, you might believe that. If you believe that, you're convinced. You're persuaded that it's true. My statement is true. So when Jesus says, For God so loved the world 
that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. Do you believe that? That by believing in Him, you can have it. Well, then you've got it. There are, it's true. There are other doctrines we should incorporate to understand the whole realm of what God has done for us through the person of Christ. But as far as pers- um, uh, justification phase one, that's belief in the person of Christ. So, closing. Violate any of these and you grieve God the Holy Spirit. We don't want to grieve. That's why I said on the top there are points of observation to experience the resurrection power that's found and discovered in P2 salvation, phase 2 salvation. It's by making sure that we're aligned with His Word and His will as found in the Word of God. The more that we're familiar with this, when we say He's our Lord and Savior, we know what that actually means. So as we continue to move through this, I'm confident that we're going to discover the intricacies of phase two salvation. It is really deep and profound. So let's close in a word of prayer. And I will see you all next week, lest you are raptured out of here before any of us. Father, we thank you for this opportunity where we can, again, examine your word. We recognize that the Bible is rich and full of meaning and the depth of the principles and doctrines is found in the Word is profound. And yet we understand, we know deep down in our soul that everything that we're seeing thus far is true. It resonates in us and it allows us to sense that this is truly what you expect from us. Maybe this is the missing link as far as our spiritual life is concerned, that we have to understand fully what it means when we say we're truly disciples of Christ. It means that we're obeying Him, we're obeying you, we're abiding in your word, we're committed to your word, we first trusted in you as our Savior, and thus now exercising our volition to be uh, a disciple of yours. So help us, Father, to make application to these things that we're studying together as a local assembly. And Father, may we make an impact in the devil's world as we continue to advance in the spiritual life. Thank you for hearing us. We ask and pray these things in Christ's matchless name in which we pray. Amen.